Daddy Frank played the guitar and the French harp. Sister played the ringing tambourine. Mama couldn't hear our pretty music. She read our lips and helped the family sing. Our little band was all part of living. And our only means of living at the time. And it wasn't like no normal family combo. Cause Daddy Frank, the guitar man, was blind. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Maxwell Ivy, known around the world. And it's good to welcome you to another episode of What's Your Excuse? An unusual one and something I never thought I'd be doing as late as a week ago. Uh, so, you know, y'all come to this show to hear conversations with people who will help you overcome adversity, uh, people who have thrived despite of difficult life circumstances, people who have struck out on their own and started unique businesses, and people who I personally find interesting or inspiring. And uh, this particular episode and the four that will follow this one are uh, conversations that I was asked to have Um the people at Portland State University, or PSU, are hosting their annual Mobility Matters Conference. This year, it's going to be virtual and online, and I will share the link to register in the show notes because, trust me, it's a long one, and y'all know me. I'd screw it up for sure, um, but you can find this at theblindblogger.net, and when it goes live, you'll be able to click on the link and go register Uh they have asked me to interview the speakers who will be presenting at the event, and it's a great lineup of speakers who will be talking about climate change, inclusive transportation, and development of public spaces with and for people with disabilities. Uh, I do hope that y'all will consider attending, and I hope y'all will enjoy the conversation I'm about to have with my guest today. And again, y'all can find me at theblindblogger.net. Or you can tell Alexa or Google to just play What's Your Excuse? So today I'm speaking with Anya Kelly Costello, who is a blind former Paralympian. You'd think I would get better at saying that word, considering I have a host on the network who is a future Paralympian. She is a disability advocate and journalist. She's also an advocate for climate change. She is involved and passionate about many topics. Uh, She is also someone who is continuing to live with the long-term effects of COVID. And she's a podcaster, which I just found out today and uh, really excited to meet yet another podcaster with a great show who happens to have a disability. It's called Disability uh, Crosses Borders. And it's about the intersection between disability, migration, and culture. And as she says, the messy inter- intersection, which I love. Y'all can find her at uh, aframeonlife.com a, a, a or at disabilitycrossesborders.com. So, Anya, I want to thank you for sitting down with me and sharing some of your experiences with my audience here on What's Your Excuse? Thanks so much for having me and for the introduction. Well, I do my best. I feel like if if I've done a good job, I will get something wrong that we'll have a chance to clear up later. Uh, 
So no, that was uh, all good. I think um, yeah, that was that was totally fine. And maybe I could add that the uh, Mobility Matters conference is on Thursday, March third. See, I told you. Um, so, so today is a good day because, as I tell people, the last thing you want to do is to appear superficial or overly produced. I am a real person, so uh, I appreciate you getting that in there. Yes, it is on the 3rd of March, and there are going to be some other workshops and panels in addition to what I mentioned. It'll be a full day. So, um, you know, as we were preparing to have this conversation, we kind of got off on a little side road that's been popping up uh, in other conversations I've been having. Um, I want to, I want to see if we can start by talking about uh, disability and inspiration and the way people see us in the world or how we present ourselves and whether that's healthy or not. And if it, if it isn't healthy, then what can we do about it? Yeah. Thank you for raising that question. I really appreciate it. Stella Young, who um, is a or was an Australian disability activist who sadly passed away far too young. Uh, she had a, a great TED talk called I'm Not Your Inspiration. Thank you very much. And she describes in that TED talk how in high school, uh, so Stella's a wheelchair user, Stella was a year, wheelchair user. And in high school, she got given some kind of community award. Sorry, it's been a little while since I've listened to it, but she got an award for doing not much at all, um, but the award was sort of like, oh, you know, it's, it was basically that she got it because she was a disabled person and she couldn't see any particular reason why they would have given her the thing other than that. She was just kind of going to school and uh, hanging out with friends and getting on with her life, not actually having done anything to earn the award in question. And she talks about this concept of inspiration porn, which can be really confronting when you first kind of hear about it. But this idea of objectifying disabled people and sort of a, a non-disabled perspective on just by dint of surviving as a disabled person, that that in itself, you know, just by getting on with your daily life is inspirational and I think there's a couple of aspects I want to unpick about that. One is that there's a lot of judgment involved in that and then perceiving what somebody else's experience might be like. Um, you know, for somebody with a chronic illness where, or maybe some mental illness, just, um, just surviving day to day could be quite a feat in itself. Um, you know, this is sort of the slogan, survival is resistance. It can be quite hard work, actually. Um, but on the other hand, a lot of people uh, who are disabled and just getting on with their lives, if somebody is sort of saying, oh, you're so inspiring, you're so this, you're so that, um, it feels quite uncomfortable because that's not, it, it's a perception that doesn't match the reality of how someone ever feels about themselves. Um, and I think that while it's really, really great to learn from people having comparisons like oh you know well you could do this thing and you're disabled therefore I should be able to do this thing too um you know you can pour that hot drink and you can't see so what's my excuse for not doing this other like um 
job that I've been putting off or just whatever, you know, making these comparisons. I think what it's really important to do is realize that we can learn a lot from each other, but we're still all different and we don't need to use each other as yardsticks as well. Um, and that goes for, you know, disabled people measuring up against each other too, I think, because all blind people or all, you know, wheelchair users or all chronically ill people, we're still different people at the end of the day. So while I absolutely love Facebook groups and other spaces where we can share tips, um, and I'm in so many of them, and I think that's super valuable. Um, yeah, we are all different at the end of the day. So I think that's important to keep in mind um, when we're uh, figuring out how we uh, relate to each other. And particularly in the media space, I think, uh, you know, it's mainly non-disabled people who are uh, journalists. Out of Disabled people are, you know, severely, severely underrepresented. Um, so it's important to sort of take account of how judgments can then come across in order to often very negatively um, prejudice views against disabled people, which in effect is actually one of the main forces that causes our disablement um, as the, you know, attitudinal and prejudicial barriers in society. Yeah, I was uh, speaking with a father of a, a young man who's on the autism spectrum yesterday, and he was saying, you know, Max, I recently saw a news story about a cerebral palsy, a young man with cerebral palsy who had completed a triathlon. And he said the story was about the cerebral palsy when it should have been about the triathlon. He said, because that yes. in itself is such a difficult, challenging, huge accomplishment. It was almost as if they ignored what he would have called the lead of the story. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a really interesting one because I, I've seen this a lot with uh, stories about um, being an athlete and being a disabled athlete. And, you know, it is really important actually to, to be able to talk about some of the barriers when you are trying to be um, an athlete uh, as, with a disability, because there are a lot of things that can make that quite complicated. But on the other hand, it's important that that's not siloed either. Like that's still sports journalism and that still needs to be about, you know, the disabled person as an athlete. Um, so yeah, it's really important to have both. And one of the comparisons that always comes up quite clearly as well is, is the Paralympics getting as much coverage as the Olympics just because they happen to be back, you know, back to back. So it's obvious, it's kind of easier to, to tell, but actually it needs to go a lot beyond that as well in terms of making sure that there is equal opportunities for disabled and non-disabled people to be you know able to participate in sports um, and also that means having both sports available for um, disabled you know disabled teams but also integrated um, with non-disabled people where that's appropriate so yeah a lot of space to to work on how sport is perceived and how sport is covered um with regards to disability yeah i think it's interesting that the paralympics has a similar issue with women's sports in that here in the u.s one of the conversations that's taken place over the last couple of years is how the men's basketball championship competition called march madness receives so much more uh public attention and news coverage or sports coverage than the women's tournament, which in some years has featured more competitive games and even some sometimes more talented athletes. 
Mm. Yeah, and I think it's really good that the Winter Paralympics just coming up now, uh, Channel 4 in the UK um, on the BBC, I believe, has um, a whole team of disabled presenters who are going to be leading that coverage. So that's a really good shift. We need a lot more of that. Um, And yeah, I think the other thing that I would just say while we're on the idea of sort of tropes around disability is that we can sometimes have these conversations where disabled people are kind of turned into um, not just inspiration, but like superhuman or superhero or whatever. And while the intent is to celebrate our achievements, the reality of how that can really come across is that we didn't need to work really, 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 really hard to get there. And I think that needs to be reflected as well, that we didn't just somehow pop out and become, you know, excellent athletes or excellent, whatever it may be, that there was actually a really important component of how did that happen? um, The perseverance involved in that as well. Right. Well, here in the U.S., the only Paralympics coverage we get is via Twitter, or if one of the athletes competing happens to be from the home, from the city that you, that you live in, and then the local news teams will cover that. So it's obvious we need more disability journalism, which is something I want to ask you about in a minute. I just wanted to make one last comment about this uh, a thing of making people with disabilities into superheroes. It seems like for most of the world that you run into – you're either Superman or you're the inept Clark Kent. Yeah. So those those tropes around being something other than just regular and getting on with your life or something extraordinary or pitiable or clumsy or tragic or um, the conversation lacks nuance, basically, and tends to homogenize or tends to put disabled people in a, a box altogether. And those things really damage um, perceptions of disabled people and disabled community, which is one of the reasons it's important to have uh, disabled journalists. <laughs> well, just one last thought that occurred to me while you were speaking. This is something that people in my circle say to me quite often. I don't know if you've ever heard it, but I'd like to, to hear what you think about it. I have people who will say, you know, Max, after I'm around you a while, I just forget that you're blind. Mm. Yeah. I think that always ends up like people see it as some kind of compliment, I think. But the way it also comes across to me is that being blind is somehow a barrier to a conversation or is somehow not a thing that you want to be or be associated with. Um, so, you know, phrases like, oh, but you don't look disabled or you don't look sick or you don't whatever kind of takes away the fact that being disabled is for a lot of us quite integral to who we are. And it, there's already enough kind of stigma and shame associated with disability out there that you know it's important for us to find acceptance and uh, for some of us even pride in that and so um yeah I think those comments come from a well-intentioned place but are not necessarily as thought through as they could be um 
that's that's my take on it. I don't know how you feel about it. Well, I'm I'm one of those people who I tend to take things uh, more likely I will take them in a positive way, unless it's like a situation like this where I'm sitting down with somebody and the goal is to have a conversation and explore some things that you don't usually think about or talk about. So, you know, after, after discussing a little bit, I can see how there's just as much negative connotation attached to it as, as positive, which is, uh, you know, kind of difficult for for me to accept. It's one of those things I'm going to have to think about it more. So it's a uh, tricky one. And I also think it's, you know, even though that might be how I feel about it, that doesn't necessarily mean that every time that I might hear that, that I would raise how I feel about it. I think there's a lot of that circumstantial kind of, you know, you figure out when is a good moment to have those conversations and everyone has to figure that out in, in their own way as well. So, yeah, I think it's good to be able to raise the issue in a space like here when it's not that somebody has just said it to you and you have to figure out on the spot, oh, you know, how am I going to respond? Because if you imagine that then someone is listening to this conversation, um, maybe they might think a little bit more before they made that comment in future. And then that's super, super helpful in my view that they've had that background. Right. So then whether we agree or not, it's great that we're having this conversation because we're bringing these topics out in a in in a non-threatening way for the listeners, who we hope will then have uh, a think about it for themselves and and maybe change their opinions. So, uh, I want to finally get to disability journalism because this is something I did not know about until like last week again, and I started thinking about it. And you know, they say that the uh, the important part of history is that it's usually written by the winners. So. Really, yes. it's not what happened. It's who, or as, as we used to say in my family, you better get your story in first, you know. So now the more I think about it, the more I, I'm, I'm really like, man, we've got to have more journalists who uh, are people with disabilities if we want to be more, ha- have a more inclusive, inclusive role in our, in our communities and our societies. So when did disability journalism become a thing? Uh, how do you see it? And, and what, do you, what do you hope for its role going forward? Yeah, I mean, I couldn't tell you like a history of disabled people in journalism, to be quite honest with you. I haven't um, tried to, to research that. And I don't think it's terribly visible. Um, no. For, I can tell you about my experience and how I found my way into it. Um, which was that I ended up doing an internship at a news outlet in New Zealand, where I'm from. And at the time, I was supposed to be covering kind of just a range of um, stories about whatever happened to be the, the news of the day and maybe a few features. And it turned out that the software that the uh, media outlet was using to upload stories to file stories was not accessible with the screen reader um, and so that meant that I wasn't filing my own stories I needed to ask you know another journalist to do that and it also meant I couldn't do any developing stories because I couldn't go in and update the story as it as it developed um, so kind of as a as a result of that and perhaps as a result of me being a little bit slower um, than other journalists to to work on stuff 
I ended up not being assigned things quite as frequently, which gave me the space to then pitch more stories that I was interested in covering. And because I had just come out of a role where I had been quite connected with the disability community um, in New Zealand, and because I cared a lot about that, um, you know, making disability related reporting more visible across a whole range of different issues, um, I pitched quite a lot of disability related stories while I was there. And so that was when I first really started thinking about the importance of that. And um, of course, not every disabled person who is a journalist should be obliged to cover disability. I should say that up front. Um, but it's, I think, really important to also acknowledge that disability intersects with everything, right? So whether that's stories about health or employment or the pandemic or climate or education or, you know, whatever you can think of, housing and transport or whatnot, there's always, always, always disability stories related to those things. And they are rarely told still now. Right. Well, I did a, a search on LinkedIn for uh, disability journalism, and I found, I think, seven or eight profiles that actually listed that in either their headline or their about me section. So obviously there aren't a lot of them, but the, I noticed that probably half of the people I did find their uh, area of focus is arts and entertainment um celebrities books movies so that's that's what i was able to find in a very limited linkedin search but so it's obviously a new field but an important field because if we're if we're not out there helping to to uh to shape the stories then things that are important to people with disabilities won't be touched on by the other reporters that are covering those same stories yeah that's true um, and I'd say in the, the sort of blind journalists area, I started kind of looking for people and seeing if I could find people a couple of years ago. And I'd say that there is a Facebook group um, where there's some people, maybe 20 or 30. Um, and I probably know a handful more. But yeah, we're also within the wider like disabled journalist community. I don't think we're terribly well networked as well. So I think that's also one of the challenges um is that yeah just in terms of visibility um there is a site i think it's disabledwriters.com i can confirm that for you where you can uh like upload a, a profile and some areas of interest and it's basically a, a database of disabled writers or subject area experts as well uh, with the intention that people can kind of find people through there to connect with um, or to, you know, work with on on stories. Um, so that does exist as a resource. And that is, um, I know Essie Smith, and I can't remember who else has worked on, on, on creating that, but that's a one good resource. Well, I will definitely look for them or you can send me the link and we'll add it to the notes on yeah. this conversation. Um, you mentioned that the disability uh, writers or or uh, or uh, journalists are not well connected. You know, in in general, the disability community or communities are not well connected. And and I, I'm hoping, and I'm sure the people at Portland State are hoping that the Mobility Matters Conference 
can be a way to to have some impact on helping us become more connected because quite honestly, it's one of the few events I have run across where multiple disabilities are being represented among the speakers and the and the panelists, which is not usually the case. I think it's yeah, it's a challenging one. There are some spaces where it's I think more common. Uh, but a lot of them are very specifically disability advocacy spaces. And I think one thing that we really need to see is a range of different intersecting issues and intersecting like communities coming together. So I was really happy that with Mobility Matters, I think the focus is traditionally kind of around mobility for blind people, right? But on my presentation, I asked whether I should focus more towards things that are specifically relevant for blind people or whether it would be okay to have a more of a pan-disability focus um, because of the intersections with climate change as well. And so I kept it pan-disability. And I think that's actually really useful because I hadn't realized myself until I was probably maybe four or five years into university how valuable it was to connect with the wider disabled community and to understand what some of the commonalities and differences are so that we can both, you know, advocate in a more uh, joined up way, but also advocate more for each other. And I made a lot of friends, um, other disabled friends who are not necessarily blind through that as well. And I mean, impairment specific advocacy will always be super important. I wouldn't want to invalidate that, but having that wider lens does matter and then intersecting that again with other movements such as the climate movement um, is very important to me as well. Right. Well, one of the, uh, I, I, I doubt you're familiar with it, but I have the, started a, uh, a network for podcasters who have disabilities or uh, ho- podcasts hosted by people who want to support the disability community. And one of the things that I've been really working hard on there is to make it a, I guess, the the word you use is pan disability uh, community and really, really try go out of my way to uh, invite people who represent the other disabilities to bring their content onto the platform or to create new content. So it is, it is a difficult thing because quite often uh, the vision loss community and the physical disabilities such as paraplegics and quadriplegics and the developmental disabilities uh, do seem to focus most closely on issues that affect them directly or on solutions that fit them specifically. But it, it, we really do need to uh, to be more inclusive in our uh, in our work towards accessibility, don't we? Yeah, I think so. And also in terms of intersections with mental illness and chronic illness as well. There's there's so much, and I mean. One of the areas that I became more aware of last year when doing some work with the European Network on Independent Living and um, providing some kind of secretarial support to the committee that monitors the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities uh, was around the extent to which uh, disabled people, particularly people with learning disabilities or psychosocial disabilities, are still institutionalized. Um, It's such a big issue and institutional settings by definition take away 
most of the choice and control or all of the choice and control that um, we ought to have in our lives. And people in those settings have next to no capacity to be able to really advocate for themselves while they're there. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of people that are not necessarily being included within our advocacy. And that's something I feel like I always need to work on um, as well. But I think it's it's also something for the for wider communities to consider is how do we reach out to people that are not in our Facebook groups or on Twitter or, you know, the, on the sort of mainstream, if you like, ways that we communicate with each other. Right. So as you've been dealing with COVID and uh, experiencing the the difficulties of having a very uh, debilitating chronic illness, have you felt um, not included by the general disability community? Mm. I think the thing, if I'm completely honest, that I've struggled with a little bit is that I am not new to the disability community so I'm not one of the people with long COVID who is becoming disabled for the first time but that yeah the way that I interact with the disability community is a little different now uh, mainly because I was pretty ignorant around (laughs) chronic illness before I got sick Um, so I think that is is definitely um, you know I think an awareness of including people with chronic illnesses and what our access needs may look like in terms of how advocacy is done. So uh, making sure that there is online access options, making sure that there are breaks, um, having very flexible, rearrangeable schedules um, and, you know, being tolerant of, for example, if people take longer to express themselves or, uh, any other needs uh, to do with chronic illness is is really important. And you know, disability justice frameworks, which have come out of the work of the um, performance-based art, um, projects and invalids um, in the San Francisco Bay Area and, uh, you know, activists who've worked from those really um, collective uh, intersectional lenses have done really good work in this space. So it's not it's not that it's never happening, but I do think that, for example, a lot of the kind of disability rights conversations don't quite get to a lot of the issues that people with chronic illness um, find most pressing. And of course, a lot of the advocacy to do with chronic illness is also to do with being believed, being taken seriously um, by doctors, by members of the public, uh, by researchers. Um, One of the ways that, for example, shows up, which I appreciate as a complex one, but a lot of us who were uh, first waivers, so who became sick in uh, around, you know, February, March, April 2020, we had no opportunity to get a COVID test. And so there's some surveys um, that, you know, that do include us, as long, as long as we have suspected COVID and suspected long COVID. Uh, but there's some studies that refuse to accept people who haven't had, um, a, you know, that proof of a positive test and that just leaves so, so many wow. people out of the research. So there's those kind of issues that, um, yeah, 
in terms of wider disability community. I don't know. Some people would be aware of them, but maybe the allyship could be better, I think. And I think it's also true that, uh, you know, people with chronic illness um, might not necessarily be aware of what issues are most pressing for disabled people who don't have chronic illnesses. So, yeah, I think we can learn a lot from each other. You know, when I asked that question, I was thinking about are there is it, I was thinking about maybe the more established disability communities wouldn't see somebody who has chronic illness as actually being disabled. I wasn't thinking mm-hmm. you're going to tell me there are actually cases where some COVID some COVID sufferers aren't COVID enough for the COVID treatments and assistance. That's just crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's a really, really tough one. Um, so many of us are, you know, keen in many ways for tests to be developed for long COVID so that we can have that thing that's like, yes, you definitely have long COVID. But of course, it's always going to be kind of a, a double-sided um, or like a an issue, issue that's difficult to resolve because some people will probably never be able to afford or have access to the test. So then it's still super, super important that we get taken seriously. Um you know, right. in, in studies and by the medical establishment. And that's not long COVID specific. I mean, that's um, people with ME-CFS, people with fibromyalgia, with all kinds of other chronic illnesses. Um, Lyme disease can also kind of fall into this category too, um, who haven't been necessarily well diagnosed or listened to um, or taken seriously by the medical establishment. Um, so, yeah, I, I think one of the areas of challenge or friction between um, people who have disabilities which are not specifically health limiting um, is that we don't necessarily want conditions so blindness for example um, to be overly medicalized in the sense of people seeing the answer as everyone wants to be able to see or like oh of course you should want to be able to see like taking that for granted is quite frustrating because of course some people might want to, but lots of us might not want to. Um, whereas in chronic illness community, generally people would really like treatment. Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is looking for some miracle cure, but on the whole, um, absolutely, treatment is a very, very positive, um, much wanted, much needed, you know, underfunded in terms of research and um, area. So yeah, that's another one of those quite tricky um, crossover um, things where maybe communities have different different interactions with, with the medical establishment. I was very lucky that before I was chronically ill, um, I happened to be very healthy and my blindness was also, you know, I, I know a lot of people who are blind have issues um, relating to eye pain or eye pressure or something rather um, I very luckily haven't so my eyes were very healthy and I had very little interaction with um, you know doctors in the medical establishment beyond routine checks before that right so they were much more likely to listen to you and believe you because you hadn't been in the system a bunch of times before this um I just didn't need to push for anything really I mean, I've had a couple of, you know, like I had my wisdom teeth out or had ear infections or whatever, but like nothing particularly serious. Um, And so I never really needed to advocate for that. And 
um, yeah, with long COVID, I've had a mix. I've had uh, some people who've been very good and who have believed me, and I've had others who I wouldn't go as far as to say they've completely disbelieved me, but their questions kind of want to lead you down a garden path towards their particular like one system or one specialization and it doesn't necessarily take into account the more holistic experience that I need to be telling them about because I don't know how to separate out neurological symptoms from autoimmune systems from metabolic um, symptoms so yeah okay all right so uh you know what ladies and gentlemen I'm uh I'm having a great conversation with Anya Kelly Costello uh, she is a blind former Paralympian, a disability journalist, an activist for disability rights as, also, as well as for climate change. And she's going to be speaking at Mobility Matters on March 3rd, which is an online conference this year to gather people who wish to support and learn more about people with disabilities. And specifically, the conference will be addressing uh, the It'll be addressing a, it will be addressing climate change, um, responsive uh, transportation that addresses the needs of people with disabilities, and the development of public spaces with and for people with disabilities. So I hope y'all will check that out and consider attending. <clears throat> and uh, you can find Anya at uh, at disability disability crosses borders.com that's her podcast or uh my frame on life.com which is her blog and website so um you mentioned before we started recording that as you've had covid you've had to you've had to ask for more help and accept for help and uh also you've talked about advocating for yourself as somebody with disability i'm of the opinion that uh, people with a disability are much more willing and likely to ask for help or even to be more gracious in accepting help because uh, we have experience doing it. And in many cases, we have, a, uh, we have many years of being uh, encouraged to ask for help as opposed to being taught not to. That's a interesting. Yeah, I, I think it can go both ways, you know, because I think on the one hand, a lot of us feel, I know I've felt this um, at times, a pressure to be the good, quote unquote, disabled person who <laughs> manages to do everything very well and, you know, not be this kind of myth of being as, you know, independent, autonomous as humanly possible to, to an extreme. I think because we've had to face pity and because there's sometimes very low expectations on us I think it can go that way too uh, and I, I think as well for people who are newly acquiring disability who haven't been disabled before but you know it's quite hard in that initial stage uh, for a lot of people at least to kind of accept that change but on the other hand as you say um, you know a lot of us have had a lot of practice being disabled and maybe <laughs> we've tried out trying to um, work ourselves to the bone and it maybe hasn't gone so well and then you know so I think there's various different ways that you can come around to the idea that asking for help and also just working in ways that work for you um, rather than necessarily doing something in the most traditional way can be a really good idea so 
a couple of examples of that. Um, since I've had long COVID, my executive function or like ability to prioritize and plan out tasks and actually get things done um, has been impacted. And I use now um, reminders on my Amazon Echo device who is sitting here, so I won't name her, um, <laughs> to, to be able to just kind of yell at me. Um, which is a good system for me because on my phone, I tend to not have all the notifications on all the time, the sound on all the time, because I can also be um, quite sensitive to being uh, like surprised or um, like my adrenaline like response can be a little elevated compared to what it used to be. Um, and then also with things like doing interviews, I often now ask for questions in advance so I can think about them because I know I'm slower to process information. Um, but, you know, even before I was sick, if I think about, um, you know, sometimes with inaccessible websites and things like that, if you can get assistance with whatever the task at hand is, or if you can delegate a job which is not terribly accessible to someone else rather than pushing through the thing yourself, I've definitely found options like that um, to work out really well and just thinking about when you're you know in groups what are different people's strengths and um like capacities to to do particular things so I think that's really useful um and yeah as I mentioned before I'm in a lot of different um Facebook groups and email lists on uh things to do with you know screen readers and technology and um cooking and writing and long COVID and whatever it may be really um so those groups can be very very useful as well for um tips or just finding different tools that work for you for example like there's a note-taking app called simple note that i really like because it's got that's free and it's got seamless sync between ios and windows so i can write something on my phone go over to my computer and it's there and so just like finding finding ways that work for you. I've um, figured out how to do, or just, I use my phone a lot more than I used to now because I find it easy to use when I'm in bed. Whereas I find a keyboard, typing on a keyboard, um, less ergonomically comfortable if I need to do it for long times when, when I'm in bed. So yeah, I think just constantly adapting and um, figuring out the ways of working that are going to be best for you and trying to have those support networks around you, whatever they may look like. I'm very lucky that while I've had long COVID, I've been able to live with my parents um, who have helped me out both um, in terms, like the fact of living with them has helped me in terms of financial security. And they've also helped massively with cooking as well. And so the energy, you know, when you have long COVID, you have limit, very limited energy. The energy I would have had to spend on that, I've been able to spend, um, either you know getting better and or trying to trying to look after my health or doing advocacy or reading or something that I wanted to do which is incredibly beneficial for mental health um to be able to still have some kind of involvement um from my bedroom but still being connected to community and friends and um yeah find meaning in life somewhere Right. Well, I tell people it's funny how hard and I tried and how much effort I expended into 
doing in-person events when I spent the first eh, 10 years of my career building my brand completely online and never having to leave my bedroom. So uh, I I think one of the things that COVID is really doing for a lot of people, and I don't want to discount your physical health issues, but it does seem like COVID is freeing a lot of people from the things they think they should be doing or should have to do for themselves and the things they're willing to let other people do for them, especially in the area of, of family support, because it seems like we have lost a lot of the stigma that we had even three years ago when it comes to uh, living with friends or relatives and supporting each other financially, emotionally, and in the, in the distribution of chores. I hope so. I think COVID has been, or at least has the opportunity to be very unifying in the early days of the pandemic in New Zealand, that was certainly visible. New Zealand, as you may know, went into a very uh, strict lockdown very early on uh, with the intention and the success eventually of uh, eliminating COVID um, from the country for, for, you know, obviously it came back again, but it was eliminated. Um, and in order to get to that point, that required a huge amount of sacrifice and people were you know, doing that together. And it was, it was unifying in that sense. Unfortunately, for those of us who were abroad at that time, there <laughs> did become a, a sort of an in-group, out-group attitude um, from a lot of New Zealanders um, that became quite visible towards people um, overseas who might need to get back for some reason, because um, the borders were... Um, there was a managed isolation and quarantine system, but there was limited spots within that system. Uh, so, you know, people were basically seen as the COVID vectors or whatever. <laughs> um, some less yeah. favorable terms were used. Um, so that was also visible. And I mean, of course, now there's been the convoy in Canada and there's also a, a convoy protest in New Zealand. And we're really seeing some um, very horrible... Um, alt-right and neo-Nazi and um, conspiracy theories mixed to really damage social fabric and really kind of disregard and devalue the lives of disabled and immunocompromised folks um, and really elevate um, our unsafe, like how unsafe we already kind of are with a, with a pandemic going around. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, quite a complex picture in terms of social dynamics I think but I would like to think that people are more aware of the need to support each other um, mutual aid type support and and family type support and to do that in a a flexible way one other thing I might just bring up too is that before the pandemic there were a lot of disabled and ill people who had been asking for a very long time for more flexible working arrangements and being able to work from home and work online and and who weren't, you know, granted those accommodations. And suddenly the pandemic comes along and, um, you know, very significant swaths of the world um, that could, um, you know, work from home and work online when it was absolutely necessary. It happened, you know, and it happened pretty quickly as well. So I think a lot of disabled people kind of felt like, you know, access was being pretty much intentionally, or maybe not intentionally, but 
discarded in a way where um, disabled people were really seen as secondary or seen as less important in terms of our needs before that happened. So, um, <coughs> well, as I as I often as I yeah so, as I often tell people, you know, all we have to do to get uh, to get changes is to find a is to find a financial or emotional reason for the rest of the world to do it, and then we'll come along with them. So. But I think it's just really, and sorry, I just want to say on the end of that, it's really, really critical that those changes stay in place for those who need them as well. And that when we are starting to, you know, return to in-person working and events and whatever it may be to remember that there are and will always be people who need flexible online uh, remote options and to keep those available too. Sorry. Right. No, that's fine. I appreciate you adding that. And those, those people who will always need that flexibility aren't just the disabled. They are the immunocompromised. They are the single parents. They are the uh, people who are caregivers. They are people exactly. who, who live in, in uh, neighborhoods where they don't have easy access to uh, physically go to and from work. So uh, so there are lots of people that applies to. And then there was one other thing I wanted to, wanted to, wanted you to touch on as far as advocating or asking for help is I find that a lot of people can get to the point where they can ask, but for some reason, when somebody comes along and offers to help them without an, an obvious ask having been made, that like just sets off all the alarms in people's egos. I think that there is asking if you want help and then there is insisting upon help. So I just would make that distinction as well. I mean, you're blind too, so I'm sure that you will also have had your experiences of people who have firmly got it decided that they really need to um, grab your arm and show you across the street where you didn't necessarily want to go or, or whatever it may be, you know. And so people being able to sort of say, um, no, thank you. I I'm fine, thank you, and that be listened to is really, really, really critical. Yes, um, it is. It but, is a it is a balancing act. But what I but you know in a in a less physical means, in terms of say, mm-hmm. in terms of say advice or uh, assistance with mm-hmm. a website or your business or somebody who mm-hmm. may be, who may have a better idea for the recipe you're preparing. You know, there I find that uh, quite often if somebody offers you know, forget about putting your hand, you know, on grabbing somebody by the arm and trying to drag them across the street. Um, that is, if somebody comes along and say, and offers to help you with a particular project or, 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 or difficulty, even beyond people with disabilities. In fact, I think it's worse on people who don't have disabilities. The fact that somebody offered without being asked really just seems to, to hit the, the bad spots of people's egos. I think, yeah, I think it's tricky because um, you don't necessarily know with what kind of, I guess, intent that people are necessarily approaching. So I think I think there is definitely a lot more space for all of us. And I, I don't think I agree with you. I don't think this is a disability specific issue anymore um, to be able to learn from each other um, and to be able to take on board help and I think that is valuable to you know have that humility and and be able to do that um but yeah I think I mean (laughs) I just think of in the in the chronic illness space 
there is no end of wellness marketing and uh, you know people who have very little or zero connection to our you know conditions being have you tried this and that and this and that and it can get quite overwhelming and quite um unwanted so yeah I mean I think it's there there's definitely a a space for for approaching people and and making suggestions but um I don't think that necessarily means that, that that that's always the case in every you know situation because ultimately in regards to something like a being chronically ill or um having a particular area of expertise um that is also important to kind of respect that I think as well yeah right of course what you're talking about there that was mostly in the area of what I would call marketing which uh very seldom is marketing well-intentioned generally (laughs) marketing generally marketing's sole purpose is to benefit the person doing the marketing or the company they work for so uh that's that's another thing another another part of it so um I while while it's not my focus um and you know we're we're here talking about your address at the uh, Mobility Matters conference on March third. Uh, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about your work in the area of climate and how you feel that climate and disability are intersected in the whole idea of inclusion. Yeah, thanks. So I initially got involved in climate campaigning in two thousand and fourteen. So. In 2013, as a first-year university student, I uh, was staying at uh, like residential halls with other students, and some of them were going along to uh, talk. So Bill McKibben turned out to be the co-founder of 350.org, which is a grassroots climate justice organization which uh, was campaigning for fossil fuel divestment, so for institutions, uh, churches, banks, you know, universities, cities, etc., to take their uh, investments out of the coal, oil, and gas industry to undermine their social license, because ultimately this industry is, uh, by and large, responsible for climate change, um, its profit-seeking practices, and the people, you know, the CEOs of those companies driving that um, knowingly. So uh, I went to a talk about um, the divestment movement and the next year when a campaign was um, being started up uh, on my university campus, um, I had never really been involved in campaigning before, but I thought that that sounded like a really um, something I really wanted to be involved in. And um, I was a little hesitant to see whether, you know, I would be useful or was there something I could do because I had absolutely no idea. And of course, being disabled as well, wasn't really sure how it would be taken, but it was actually really good. Um, the campaign, I ended up going to the first meeting. It was really, really just beginning and got involved in starting a fossil-free uh, student club on campus and making, um, you know, bridges with staff as well. So, yeah, we had a, a, a big movement. Uh, it took five years to win that campaign, but uh, the University of Auckland did eventually divest in 2019. So that was exciting. Um, that was main road into climate. And then in terms of how disability and climate intersect. So obviously that aspect that I just mentioned around um, making sure campaigning movements 
are accessible to and inclusive of disabled people is really critical. And a part of that as well is being aware of how ableism, which specifically within climate environmental spaces, um, it's called eco-ableism, can show up in the messaging or the practices of, of climate movements. And we can get into that more later if you want to. Um, but in terms of how disabled people are impacted by climate change as well, that's a really big area because disabled people are disproportionately impacted and disabled people who are multiply marginalized by um, being BIPOC or living in poverty, um, living in rural or coastal areas. Um, there are all kinds of different ways, um, living institutions, living in conflict zones, you name it, like uh, disabled people really are disproportionately impacted whenever there's extreme weather um, in terms of the effects on our bodies, in terms of our ability to um, evacuate or um, have our support networks in place that we might need or uh, power might go out, which we might rely on for, you know, machines or medications that we need, like literally to survive, or, um, you know, climate displacement might not um, be inclusive of disabled people in terms of figuring out what the planning for relocation is. So there's a lot of ways in which it's really important that these uh, disaster risk reduction conversations, as, they, as they're called, um, are actively including the um, expertise of disabled people and our representative organizations. And this also applies. Um, the other kind of big area of intersection between disability and climate is climate action and um, how we design everything basically going forward uh, from the economy and places and mobility, transport, um, <clears throat> healthcare, all of this will be impacted um, by needing to be more climate resilient, but it's also super important that we look at the fact that a lot of the roots of what have caused, if you go back um, deep enough, have caused climate change in terms of um, you know, capitalist kind of rules of the economy that really prize kind of um, profit seeking have also caused the oppression of disabled people. So when you're trying to kind of untangle that and and go back to, you know, figuring out what got us into this mess in the first place, um, it's really important that disabled people are part of those conversations so that the future, um, you know, where we're living and how we're working and how we're getting around and everything is accessible to and inclusive of disabled people. Did you ever experience anyone who thought that because you're blind that you really weren't personally invested in the movement, that you were being uh, coerced or manipulated because of your disability? No, I don't think so. Um, not that they made obvious to me anyway. Um, I was very lucky that within the fossil free space in particular, I had really, really good um, people I was working with. One thing I would say is that you know, being accessible and inclusive, it's still not the status quo in most spaces. So there were practices like, for example, even just simple things like adding image descriptions on social media, where in the beginning, until people could get into a habit of it, you know, those kinds <laughs> of things took reminders. Um, but what I found with that group was that people really were keen um, to to remember and when they did start to remember 
um, the fact that more people were doing it actually meant that I didn't have to then educate a lot of other people who were in the same Facebook groups and spaces because they saw other people doing it and then they could, um, you know, copy that. And so um, I was, after kind of being involved with myself for a while within um, 350 Aotearoa, which is the New Zealand um, chapter of, of 350.org, I started working with 350 on um, creating an accessibility and um, inclusion manifesto for um, making sure that the movement is um, a lot more accessible to everyone um, with a focus on disabled people. So I think, yeah, having those conversations within climate movements is incredibly important. And one thing I would also say to you know, people within climate spaces is you don't need to wait for a disabled person to be interested before you start those conversations um, and, you know, reaching out to disabled community and in fact budgeting for that as well um, when you're working with other communities to make sure that it's not just sort of um, borrowing off people's time to give you their their expertise <laughs> um, is, is really important to do. Um, so yeah, I think I think I haven't felt I've never felt sort of um, disbelieved, but the one area where I was mentioning eco ableism before, where it can come up is that um, if messaging is basically not inclusive of disabled people, so the most well known case is something like the the straw ban issue, where some disabled people really relied on plastic straws to be able to drink, like that was an essential thing, and. So this focus on this one um, particular type of plastic, which wasn't even the root of most of plastic pollution. I think it's, I don't have the number on hand, but I think it's something like 0.1% or, you know, a very small amount um, was really alienating to disabled people. And that really messaging like that just breaks down trust between environmental and climate and disabled um, community. Uh, and, you know, when, when, for example, there's advocacy for more cycling um, or more, you know, e-scooters and micromobility, we also really have to consider, okay, make sure that's in separated cycle lanes, cycle slash micromobility lanes, right? And that there's also a way for blind people to be able to know where does the footpath stop and where does the um, cycling lane start? Like that has to be marked. Or if you're talking about public transport and the need for free, accessible, affordable public transport, don't forget that for some physically disabled people in particular, having their own vehicle, um, which has been modified and is accessible to them, is a really critical way that they will continue to get around. So make sure the mobility parking stays there or that people with chronic illnesses often will need door-to-door transport. So make sure there's still that capacity for that. You know, So that kind of, not exclusion by design, but exclusion nonetheless, <laughs> um, does impact on disabled people's kind of willingness I think, to be involved in those spaces. So that's that's important to consider. Yeah, yeah. As as they're trying to improve things for climate, um, they have to remember that some of these things are important to people with disabilities or people with chronic illnesses, and they they need to address those and take those concerns into account, and where possible, maintain. Yeah maintain those services, just maybe deliver them in a more eco-friendly way. Yeah, yeah, 
Okay. Like, the it's reason- absolutely true that we need a lot less cars. Like, that is 100% <laughs> correct. And we need a lot more public transport, but we don't want to take away access. Um, so, yeah, making sure that those conversations happen in collaboration with disabled people is so, so important for that. Yeah. Right. Well, the reason for my initial question was, is when uh, Helen Keller was alive, near the, I'd I'd say later in life, she became involved with the World Workers Union and advocating for the rights of workers, for higher pay, for better working conditions. And it was, uh, it's at least from what I've read, the more she advocated for workers' rights, the more people thought it was Ann Sullivan advocating for workers' rights, not Helen Keller. So that's Mm. where the question came from. Mm. Yeah, no, that's... (laughs) Um, that is definitely a case that disabled people can be boxed in as like, oh, if you're advocating, you should only be advocating for disability. But like, if you think about it, what does that even mean, right? <laughs> like, at the end of the day, disabled people are people and uh, disability interacts with all of these other movements in, in so many different ways. Um, and I think that's super important that we're there and that we're visible. So um, yeah, I really encourage environmental and climate and movements on, yeah, as you say, unions or whatever the subject may be, uh, to make sure there's that access and inclusion for disabled people to um, actively participate. And part of that as well, which is for everyone, um, but I think it, it's especially relevant for disabled people, is making sure that there's not like a hierarchy of which actions are seen as like the the most important ones. Because generally the way that works is that there's this term like slacktivism where like if you're on Twitter or you're like um, doing stuff online, this is seen as lazy or like not the real thing. And then protests on the street are, or like, you know, direct actions are seen as kind of more valuable. And that's really, really harmful because at the end of the day, all of us will contribute in, in different ways, um, even something like Um, keeping people fed or um, making art or um, tweeting your elected representatives or whatever it may be, all of these things can make really important contributions to movements. So yeah, having that like range of ways for people to be involved is critical and not elevating one above the other. Right. And you know, since we're talking about mobility matters, when I, the conference on March 3rd, when I speak to people, because I get asked about accessibility, especially online accessibility a lot, I, mm-hmm. I like to remind them that there are two very real problems with making websites universally accessible. One is that uh, we, regardless of our disability, we are all individuals. And even if you have two people with the exact same vision loss, for, for 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 instance, who have the same equipment, they won't use it at the same level or they won't choose to navigate websites the same way. So they won't solve their problems the same way, even given the same vision loss and the same technology, because we're all individuals. And then the second part of yeah. it, I, you know, so and the second part I tell people is that as individuals, we don't all use the same technology. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's very true. I think I should... I mean, preface that by saying that um, the web content accessibility guidelines exist for a very good reason. Um, And they are, you know, a really useful guide because 
they have been developed in, in collaboration with disabled people. And um, so they're, they're really important. But as you say, um, accessibility for websites is often seen in very binary terms, like either it's perfectly accessible or it's not accessible. And it's just not like that at all. And as you say, levels of screen reader proficiency or the way that we work with technology and all these things really makes a big difference. The other thing that makes a difference is like, what is the learning curve? So there's like, if we take Google Docs, for example, even some sighted people who are maybe not, you know, digital natives and not super comfortable with tech might be like, oh, you know, I really don't feel super comfy working in Google Docs. But for blind people, um, working in Google Docs does mean learning new keyboard shortcuts to a, to an extent that you don't need to if you're sighted, right? So like the learning curve for a lot of these sort of tools is bigger. And then sometimes the tools are not even super accessible. For example, a lot of project management software has horrible accessibility. Another example is a qualitative um, data analysis software for research. Um, all of the systems I tried, horrible, unusable. Um, so a lot of the time, it's either that the learning curve is so big because it's just so, so difficult to use that, you know, at some point you're like, is it worth it at all? Um, or it's just that it's, you know, it's possible to use, but it takes a lot more time to get to the point where you really feel like you can um, be comfortable with it. So I've seen that one a lot with Google Docs where I have had to use it for years and I'm totally fine with it. Um, but a lot of, you know, other blind folks, maybe not so much. And so it's super, super important that people don't go, oh, Anya can use Google Docs. Therefore, you should also be fine with using Google Docs. And well, to, so, yeah. Well, to finish your conversation there, I'm one of the few blind people who is not comfortable with Google Docs. It confuses the heck out of me. I I don't I love, think you're I, a minority. I've heard it from a lot of people. Yeah. I, I love everything else, Google. There, uh, you know, Drive, Sheets, Forms, um, mm. Calendar. I only have two problems with them. I, I, I just can't manage Google Docs, but I'm expecting to get some training from the state of Texas. So hopefully they'll help me figure out Google Docs. The other thing, and this is one of those where I've, I have many blind friends who are more technically savvy than I am who tell me, that creating a Google form on the back end is not accessible. So there are, but it's very few things about Google. I've, I've been very impressed with their efforts, uh, accessibility, especially for screen readers, because, you know, the one thing a lot of people still don't understand is when it comes to making things accessible for screen reader users, you have three, there are three screen readers people are using, depending on what computer they have. So and that doesn't also, and also there are people who depend solely on a phone or a tablet to navigate the web. So there's, there's a lot of stuff going in there, but yeah, Google. Uh, or I'm Braille as well. Some people only use Braille too. So yeah, there's like, and there's a whole range. Um, yeah, even on Windows alone, there's, you know, there's the three main screen readers, NVDH, Awesome Narrator, and then, yeah. So there's, there's a lot of different um, combinations of assistive tech and, um, you know, browsers and um, how that might interact with pretty much everything else. So I think that is a part that I would I would kind of flag for campaigning movements as well, because 
campaigning movement can often be on this kind of leading edge of adopting new um, organizing tools and new platforms to do that with. Um, and so whether that's different ways of brainstorming material on these kind of virtual whiteboard systems, for example, or um, using things like Slack and going back, you know, maybe five or six years now when Slack was not so widely used um, or things like Trello or other project management software. And it is tricky, you know, when you're the only disabled person or the only person with um, particular assistive tech access needs in those spaces um, to be able to sort of speak up and sort of say, hey, actually this, yeah, I can kind of technically use it, but it's really quite a pain. Um, because often that's the case. It's not, it's not, you can say black and white. No, it's completely unusable. Occasionally it is, but usually it's something more like, eh, yeah, maybe, but it's actually really hard. And there, it would be really good for people to understand uh, and be in allyship with us and say, hey, okay, no, we're going to find a system where whatever the end result looks like, whatever creative solution we come up with, you're going to be fully included in that. So that's another way that um, it's important to be accessible to us. Yeah, that is a good point. In organization, in organizations, both in climate and other fields, in their desire to be out on the cutting edge and be in tune with whatever the latest technology is, sometimes the latest technology is not accessible. That is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I've I've really enjoyed sitting down and talking with you, uh, Anya and. To be quite honest, I was a little nervous when I was when I heard that you wanted me to submit questions in advance because as you've as you've probably noticed by now, I'm more of a free flowing type person than a we're going to have a script and stick to it kind of person. So I I appreciate your patience and your tolerance and your understanding and and um, I want to I want to end by giving you the opportunity to tell people uh, what they can expect to hear from you at Mobility Mobility Matters and. Uh, maybe a call to action to get them to come and listen to your talk. Yeah, sure. Thank you. And thank you for the chance to have this conversation as well and for helping me out by by sending some ideas in advance. I think it was a good balance. So uh, there are there are several speakers at Mobility Matters. Um, but for me, uh, I'm talking about the intersections between climate justice and disability justice as well as ideas for accessible mobility, which is also climate friendly. Uh, so there will be part of my presentation, which I've pre-recorded, uh, which we will listen to, and then a chance for questions and a Q&A. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. I think it's a, a great opportunity to have uh, a conversation about mobility, which ties in with uh, some of these, you know, climate breakdown is, such a pervasive crisis um, that looking at the roots of that and how that connects to um, disability justice is a really useful way of orienting how we think about design for the future. Uh, So yeah, it's on March 3rd um, and the registration link will be in the show notes. So definitely encourage um, college students can register for $10 and there are other Um, ticket options prices um, there. So uh, yeah, I have a look at the registration page um, if you would be interested in that. And my uh, presentation 
slides will be available on the website at some point after the conference. And I think the recording will also be available afterwards as well. So looking forward to being able to share that with people. I think you're probably right. And, and should that happen, I will do my best to include links to that uh, on the page where people will be able to listen to this. Uh, one of the great things about using a blog as your platform is it's really easy to update existing posts with new. Uh, I can't hear you at all. Uh, I don't know if you can hear me, but I completely lost your audio. Sorry. Okay. I think what I was going to say is one of the great things about using a blog as your platform is that you can update the, the post with new information as it becomes available. So once the conference is over and those links are available, they will be added to the same place y'all go to listen to this, which is at theblindblogger.net. And so we look forward to hearing you there. Uh, Anya, I really appreciate you coming and talking with me and sharing such great information and, and some of your personal thoughts and experiences with my audience. And I look forward to getting to hear your talk during the Mobility Matters Conference on the 3rd. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Max. I appreciate it. Okay. All right, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I think we've had another great conversation today. We've had a wide ranging talk about uh, disability, the environment, climate change, activism, uh, accessibility, mobility, transportation, so many different subjects we've covered. And I hope that you have gotten a better understanding of what it's like, whether it's a disability or a chronic illness, to live with the, uh, the, the rest of the world, to deal with the daily challenges. Um, we don't want to be seen as superheroes. We just want it to be easier for us to navigate the the challenges that everybody else has that um, just maybe seem to be different because we do it with vision loss or we do it in a wheelchair or we do it with hearing loss. So I uh, do hope to check out the website, theblindblogger.net. I hope you will go to the website I will share for the conference and check that out. It sounds like there are some low cost options to attend. And uh, until next time, 
I do appreciate your continued support. I know you have a lot of, of options for your time. You choose to spend some of your time with me, so thank you. Uh, Y'all take care now. Uh, Too many times we stand aside And let the water slip away To what we put off to tomorrow Has finally come today